25. It's good to see everyone this morning. My title for you today is Keep Yourselves from Idols. Keep Yourselves from Idols. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. My title for you, as I've already mentioned, is Keep Yourselves from Idols. And if you hear some familiarity with that phrase, you would be right. It is taken from the very last verse of the first epistle of John, chapter 5, verse 21, where John says to finish all of that that he has downloaded to his people, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I know that we've recently covered the topic of idolatry, so while I wish to remain faithful to the text that is before us and honor its message, even if it might seem redundant to us, I want to take a different approach to this issue of idolatry, and I hope that as I do so, I will be able to demonstrate to you the fact that though idolatry may not look today as it did in ancient times, we still have a problem with idolatry. We worship the human form as nudity becomes more and more prevalent and popularized. We worship the earth as we refer to it as our mother and defend it as if our lives are tied to it only. We worship money thinking it's the answer to every problem. We worship popularity, sending our minds on dopamine spikes as we seek the approval and acceptance of total strangers on Facebook or Instagram. We are idolaters. We just don't all make totems. The first commandment, which I know you are familiar with at this point, you shall have no other gods before me, is what we've already covered but as this is the first, and you know that there are nine more commandments to come, we'll continue. We'll be faithful to God's word, and we'll look at the nooks and crannies that are there for us to discover. But first, why ten? If the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, why nine more? Think about it. One commentator says this, if the first commandment received the respected demands, obedience to the other nine would follow as a matter of course. Continuing, it says, the God of this 20th century no more resembles the supreme sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle, the glory of a midday sun. The God who is now talked about in the average pulpit spoken of in the ordinary Sunday school class mentioned in much of the religious literature of the day and preached in most of the so-called Bible conferences is a figment of the human imagination, an invention of a maudlin sentimentality. The heathen outside of the pale of Christendom form gods out of wood and stone, while millions of heathen inside Christendom manufacture a god of their, own, of their own mind. 
This is convicting. And it's to the point. And the reality that we're looking at today, church, is this. If we were faithful to the first commandment, we would have no issues with the other nine. They would be redundant and unnecessary. But the truth of the matter is God is explicit and descriptive in his commands because we're dumb. This is the way they used to say these things. You can't do it anymore, but you're stupid. And so am I. And we have to be led about by simple instructions because we lack the capacity to receive with obedience the word of God. So he says, I am God and I am God alone. You shall have no other gods. And we go, okay. He goes, no, no, I don't think you understand. I'm going to continue down this frame of reference so that I am explicit and you have no excuse. And here we are in the second commandment that we shall not make for ourselves a carved image. I've got three points for you today. God is spirit, God is jealous, and God is just. So without any further ado, look back at this text in Deuteronomy chapter 5, if you would with me please, and read with me beginning in verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me, first commandment. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am what kind of God? I'm a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. My first of three points for you today is God is spirit. God is spirit. Looking again at verse 8, it reads, You shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is on the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. And let's just start there. A couple of things I want you to note. First, I want you to note that God is spirit. That God is spirit. No, this isn't explicitly taught in the second commandment, but it is implicit in the text. And what this commandment is telling us not to do which is make images and idols, tells us why. Namely, because God is spirit. He can't be contained in an image or a likeness. He can't be fairly portrayed in this shape or that form because God is spirit. Our Lord Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 24, says these words, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is an emphatic statement by the Lord Jesus, and it tells us that there isn't any form or shape to which we can relegate God. And what this means, church, is simple. We cannot give God an image or likeness that isn't idolatrous because God can't take a shape that satisfactorily portrays who he is. 
Did you get that? We cannot relegate God to any form or shape because there is no likeness that can satisfactorily portray who he is. And we can't gaze upon an image with affection and priority without it being idolatry if we aren't faithfully giving God glory and thanks for it. So Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. We have to remember how God originally introduced himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said, I'm going to go to your people and I'm going I'm to fulfill the calling that you're giving to me. And when I go, whom shall I say sent me? God said, tell them I am sent you. It's the Hebrew word to be. So God was telling Moses in introducing himself to Moses using the Hebrew verb to be, that he was simply but emphatically introducing himself as the God who is. You can't manage me. You can't label me. You can't contain me. You can't encompass me. You can't accommodate me with anything because I am. And any sort of manipulation of this truth means that we are wandering down a path of idolatry. When God does present himself, he presents himself in some sort of glory. Consider Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. In Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist says, You, God, are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. God is spirit. And he cannot be contained in any shape. But secondly, I want you to note this, however, that God is transcendent. I want you to note that God has transcendence. In theology, when we talk about God's transcendence, we're talking about the fact that he's high and lifted up, that he's exalted and removed from us in the world Independent of all things, he exists, satisfied and content in just being God and creates out of joy. Our God is transcendent. And if there's anything that we see so diluted today, it's the transcendence of God. God is cool, God is dad, God is friend. God is mentor and motivator. God is CFO. God is life coach. But God is not transcendent. We have made God common. And it's an idolatrous philosophy that we've succumbed to. He's transcendent, but he's not holy. The reality of the matter is God is transcendent and God is holy. And when we rob God of what is rightfully his as a three-time holy God, that church is idolatry. And it does not matter what form or shape it might take. 
You see, church, in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. God established his preeminence and solitary sovereignty as the creator God of the universe. But in the second commandment, he is establishing how our allegiance to him should look. And God teaches us in this commandment why this is important. It is important because, as the second commandment states, he is spirit, transcendent, and cannot be contained by any form or fashion or any shape. But secondly, and this leads from God as being spirit in the second commandment to our second point here, that God is jealous. This is in verse 9. Read with me again, beginning in verse 8, if you would. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Verse 9, here's why. You shall not bow down to them or serve them because I, the Lord, your God, am a what? A jealous God. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Second, I want you to note that God himself declares that he is jealous. Now, what exactly does that mean? In truth, and we all know this, jealousy isn't high on the list of preferred qualities. If you're a guy and you're jealous, it's not very attractive. If you're a girl and you're jealous, it's kind of annoying. Nobody is seeking after a partner in life who has this quality in themselves, jealousy. But there's a sort of righteous jealousy, especially in those relationships where faithfulness and allegiance have been promised. Perhaps the most obvious example of this is marriage. In a marriage... People have exchanged vows or pacts. I promise if you're sick, I promise if you're broke, I promise if you name it, I will not leave you. We will be together until we die and then glory, right? These are what the marriage vows are about. We might even go so far as to say this is the marriage covenant. No matter what happens, I'll be there for you, and you'll be there for me. But what happens when that relationship is compromised? When something or someone affects one spouse, and consequently the other spouse feels unloved, because love is being shared elsewhere, then jealousy shouldn't be a surprise. And what's more, church, a breach in faithfulness doesn't have to come in the form of an affair. There are husbands and wives who are unfaithful to their spouses and their vows because they spend more of their emotional energy on their work than they do their marriages. There are husbands and wives being unfaithful to each other because they spend more emotional energy on their hobbies than they do their marriages. More energy on their friend group than they do their marriages. More energy 
on you name it, then they do their marriages. And of course, when this breach takes place and the vow has been compromised, suddenly everyone is terribly interested in counseling and putting in effort and energy, which they've neglected for five years, seven years, ten years, and they can't figure out why their marriage is in the condition that it's in. But now they want to spend energy trying to redeem what they have forfeited. We give up. We get complacent and we get lazy. We neglect the promises that we say to everyone and God himself that we will keep. And then when we don't, jealousy happens and we go, this is no fun. This is not what I want from a marriage. Well, you only get from a marriage what you put into it. Marriages don't happen by themselves. Anybody can have a wedding. That's easy. That's party planning stuff that happens in an hour. It's over. What matters is the next 50 years. And year seven will kill you if you're not ready. Marriages do not happen accidentally. Marriages happen when the husband and wife make a covenant and keep each other accountable to that covenant. And when that covenant becomes compromised, jealousy is not an unreasonable response. Jealousy is an expected response because I have been promised or you have been promised faithfulness, allegiance, love, energy, support. And when a spouse who has made that promise between all their friends and family and God doesn't keep that promise, we shouldn't be surprised if they're one left feeling unloved and unsatisfied and unfulfilled says, this marriage is not good for me. Now, can God redeem things? Of course can God heal wounds? Absolutely. Can God rejuvenate a marriage, a person, a home? Without question and without equivocation, yes. But, as one author says, married love tolerates no rivalries. And if you and I, as human beings, will tolerate no rivalries in our love relationship between each other, who are we to be surprised when God says, you have never met someone as jealous as me? You will give me my glory. You will give me my affection. You will give me my honor. And you will give me my praise because, verse 9 of Deuteronomy 5, I am jealous. I want the love that is due to me. He is absolutely in the right because there is nothing more beautiful and glorious than God. If he weren't jealous for his glory, then he would be a lousy God. But he knows his worth. God knows his worth. And some of you need to learn a lesson from this. 
you allow people to treat you in ways that are completely unacceptable because somebody failed to teach you your worth. You think it's okay for your husband to talk to you like that because your father didn't treat you right. Ladies, you think the only picture you can take and put on Instagram is the one where you show everybody that you've got a butt too. It's amazing. So that you can get the acceptance and applause. This is your idolatry. Men, you go around speaking in a way to women who are not your wives so that you can get a little wink or a little nod. Flirtation is your idolatry. Your mother has failed you, not to raise you as a man, but to raise you as a boy. You think it's cute, and it's not cute. You're a pagan, and you need to act like a man. Men don't dishonor their wives this way. Know your worth. The reality of the matter is, people will push up against you when you know your worth, because they don't know theirs. People who act like they know their worth act very strangely to people who don't know their worth. Because they don't make compromises in certain areas of their life because they know what they're worth. They believe what God has said about them. They believe what the word of God has taught them. They believe that a wife is worthy to be treated as a queen and a husband is worthy to be treated as a king and that the children should be raised in the discipline and admonition of the Lord because we are a kingdom unit and this is not to be compromised or negotiated. We said, what about this and what about that? God's very jealous about his plan. God's very jealous about his process. And he knows his worth. And he will not compromise on this because if God were to negotiate, if God were to dilute, if God were to compromise this idea of his worth and not be jealous, he would cease to be the glorious, transcendent, Worthy God that we know him to be. But he knows his worth. So when he gives the commandment, he doesn't give a suggestion. Say amen. He doesn't say, if you find it convenient, make some time in the course of your week to bring me some praise. If you're not addicted to money and pornography and social media. If you, if you don't have any idols and you find time in the course of your very busy week, you're such an important person, not being God. If you find it convenient, please give me a thank you. This is a lousy God. Our God, the biblical God, says I'm jealous no one deserves love like I deserve love. No one deserves glory like I deserve glory. I know my worth. I want my praise. Church, our God is a jealous God. He and he alone is worthy of our affection and attention. He and he alone is the sovereign creator God who cannot be described or displayed using any particular form or fashion that satisfies his awesomeness. And when we relegate him to those things, whatever they might be, whether they take a form or fashion or not, if we place something in some form or fashion before God, if we place our pleasure, our happiness, our joy in something or someone or anything other than God, we're practicing idolatry. 
and your God is jealous. He takes that very seriously. He will not share his glory with another. As Moses says in Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, just a chapter before, the Lord our God is a consuming fire, and he is a jealous God. That is not a portrayal of the God that we hear so often portrayed. God loves you, and of course, but that's not the complete gospel. That's not a full-orbed gospel. That doesn't envelop the message of the Bible. That's why Paul says, I never shrinked back from preaching the whole counsel of God's word because God being loving is true, but God also being just church. That can't be negotiated out of this equation. And that leads us to our final point, namely that God is just. Looking again at verses 9 and 10, God is spirit. God is jealous, and finally, God is just. Reading with your eyes, verses 9 and 10, I'll read aloud. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Our final point here, our last point, is a point that is the natural conclusion of the first and second commandments combined. The holy, righteous God of all creation is also a God who deals justly with humanity. And this should be a terrifying thing for sinners like you and me. Amen? Because we're not righteous we don't deserve his love, his acceptance, his blessing. What we deserve is judgment and condemnation because we're unrighteous, we're common, we're not holy, we're not transcendent. We are not peers with God. We must see ourselves and our situation in light of God's truth and throw ourselves on the mercy of God which is found in his son Jesus Christ, amen? Having noted this, I want to share a few things. First, I want you to note that he punishes sin. I want you to note that he punishes sin. And he not only punishes sin, he's saying to us, he punishes sin regardless of the generation. He punishes sin regardless of the generation. Follow me back to the text in verse 9. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, frankly, this is a difficult text. Prima facie, or at face value, when we read this text, essentially, it's saying that if I live a life that dishonors God, then God will punish my children or even my grandchildren for it. Or to put it another way, if my parents lived a life that dishonored God, then I'd have to endure some sort of punishment for that life. That's what it's saying on the surface, but is that what the text means? Well, while it looks that way initially, there's an important explanation that's found elsewhere in the Bible. First, 
We need to know that the decisions we make affect our children. Let me start off the explanation by saying this. The decisions we make affect our children. Now, it's a tragedy for me to say this as your pastor, but some of you already know this. If only. If I had it to do again. Some of you are there today. Learning, as we would say the hard way, that the decisions we make affect our children. There's no escaping this. Our children will inherit blessings or cursing from us. The decisions you make today affect your legacy. We need to stop making decisions out of convenience and start making decisions based on character. Everything that we do today will echo in the next generation. If you don't believe me, just turn on the television and look at how the generation preceding mine failed. We have people who literally do not know if they're boys or girls. The most rudimentary, the most elementary, the most basic facts of biology and science are completely called into question now because somebody somewhere suggested that two plus two could actually equal five. Well, somebody failed somewhere. Our children will inherit blessing and cursing because of the decisions that we make. Now, we can read the text and say, oof, that seems very difficult to swallow. And you know what? I'm on the same page as you. This seems pretty difficult to swallow. But just as friends for a second, let's just think about experience. Do you see it any other way? When you think of life played out in real time, do you see it any other way? Well, I want you to consider that for a second. But I also want you to consider Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4 says this, and this is God speaking. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul who sins shall die. There, in this text, and it's a very interesting chapter, I encourage you to go read Ezekiel chapter 18 on your own this week. There, in this text, God is clearly saying that each person is ultimately responsible for themselves. And God says, the father's soul is mine, the son's soul is mine, but each soul is responsible for themselves. If that soul sins, that soul shall die. I'm not punishing the son for the sins of his father. You see, when you think about it, in view of the full picture, what God is saying here in the second commandment is this. He's not punishing people for their parents' sin. Say amen if you're listening. He's punishing them for the sin that they're engaged in because they've learned it from their parents. 
And God is saying, as long as that sin is in your family, third generation, fourth generation, I don't care how long that sin is in your family, as long as that sin is in your family, I will visit that iniquity. I will visit them with judgment. One commentator writes this, if the children grow up in an environment where God is not respected, it is very likely that they will reject God just like their parents did. So they will be judged, not for their parents' sin, but for their own. God will visit sin as long as it is present. And how we raise our children determines how God will be involved with our legacy. Second, God not only punishes sin, I want you to note also that God is faithful to love. He not only punishes sin, but God is also faithful to love. Verse 10, look at it with your eyes. It reads, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see the difference there, right? To the third or fourth generation visiting the sin that is there in that family as long as it is there. But then he turns a corner and he says, yet... I will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Or as Micah chapter 7, verse 18 says, it's beautiful, it says, God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He what? He delights in steadfast love. Church, our God delights to love. We never read a verse that says God delights in judgment. He will be just, and God will bring judgment because he doesn't compromise on right and wrong. God is always executing justice. But God delights to show love. He is faithful to his covenant, and he's faithful to his people. We've already seen this play out in our study of Deuteronomy. God has been faithful throughout this book. He has honored his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see that in chapter 4, verse 31. He's delivered his people from Egypt in chapter 1, verse 30, by protecting them in battles while they were fighting and wandering in the wilderness in chapters 3 and 4, by providing for them when they had need in chapter 2, verse 7. What object could we ever use to exemplify the faithfulness of God? None. We could never satisfactorily, having learned what we've learned of our great God, create a form or attribute to some fashion or shape the same love and worship that is due exclusively to him. Arthur Pink, in his book, The Attributes of God, says this, here then is a sure resting place for the heart. Our lives are neither the product of blind faith nor the result of capricious chance, but every detail of them was ordained from all eternity and is now ordered by the living and reigning God. Not a hair of our heads can be touched without his permission. That's our God. To close, 
Let me say this. We can all be guilty of breaking the second commandment. As we think of God in certain terms or ideas that haven't been authorized by him in the Bible. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes this, all speculative theology which rests on philosophical reasoning rather than biblical revelation is at fault here. To follow the imagination of one's heart in the realm of theology is the way to remain ignorant of God and to become an idol worshiper. Let me give you in simple points what Packer just said and what we've discussed over three points this morning. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Get to know God. Meditate on your Bible. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Get to know God. Meditate on the Bible. Read the Bible. Study the Bible. Pray the Bible. Get to know God. Read the Bible. Study the Bible. You get it? Your heart is desperately wicked and sick and infected by sin. You can't follow your heart down any of these paths. It will mislead you. Only God's revelation can tell us who he is. And when we know who he is, everything else falls into its proper place. May we never bring God to a place where he looks like something we so much admire. God's revelation of himself is found in the Holy Scriptures, and it is the antidote to idolatry. Finally, let me invite you, as we close, to turn to the book of Exodus. Chapter 33, Exodus chapter 33. I'll give you a moment to get there. We're going to begin in verse 17. Exodus chapter 33, verse 17. Give you a moment to get there. When you're there, say amen. Okay. Exodus chapter 33, verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. This is Moses interceding on behalf of his people, and God is being faithful to his covenant. He's recognizing the position that he has put Moses in. He has a unique relationship with Moses. Moses has prayed and interceded for the people. God is honoring this prayer. God is honoring Moses. He says, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, God said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. May we never play down the transcendence of God. May we live our lives with a sobriety about how majestic and awesome 
and glorified our God is. And if we do this, church, then all the other commandments will fall neatly into their place because we will have a view of our God that will keep everything else in check for us. Amen.